In this episode of Boss Files. The future of America's best days an America that has in- inclusive prosperity, fairness, and justice. That's what America's about. That's what will bring back the American dream. Peter Georgescu. He's the former chairman and CEO of Young and Rubicam. Today, his focus is on inequality in America and the risks he says it poses. Born in Romania, he was separated from his parents for years when the Iron Curtain fell and sent to a work camp with his brother when he was just nine years old. The dramatic story of how he and his brother ended up in America after President Eisenhower intervened. He lived the American dream and now warns of the consequences of the growing opportunity gap. America doesn't really understand the fact that we have two, two countries. We have 20% or so of Americans where life is about as good as it gets. And then we have the other America, half a mile away, maybe a couple of miles away, another zip code. And the people on the other zip codes can hear the music from the country club. Why he says the private sector must step up and do more to fight inequality. Despite the country's challenges, he has no doubt that America's best days are ahead. Here's my conversation with Peter Georgescu. Peter Georgescu, thank you so much for being here. So nice to be with you. Your reputation precedes you. Your book, latest book, is fascinating. And let's dive in because this is about an issue that I care deeply about, something you care deeply about, and that is income inequality and the opportunity gap and what it means for America and what it will mean for this country. In 2015, you wrote in a New York Times op-ed, I'm scared. And you explain that by saying, I'm afraid of where income inequality will lead. Well, what scares you most? Well, what scares me is sort of our complacency mm-hmm. with the issue. And I also am bothered by the fact that, in general, um, America doesn't really understand the fact that we have two, two countries. We have us, the 20 percenters. Nobody, I don't care about the 1%, to be honest with you. The 1% have always been around in every civilization across millennia. But we have 20% or so of Americans where life is about as good as it gets. And then we have the other America, yeah. just half a mile away, maybe a couple of miles away, mm-hmm. another zip code. Mm-hmm. And the people on the other zip codes can hear the music from yeah. the country club. I live it, I mean, I live it in my neighborhood in Brooklyn less than a mile away yes. are the projects. Yes. Um, you've done some really fascinating research about the state of income inequality in America today. And what you found through all the calculations you did, all the data you and your team put together, 60% of U.S. homes, 60% of U.S. homes have to borrow money to put food on the table today, today. in the richest country on earth. Exactly. And, you know, it sounds like an abstraction. It just can't be. And we don't want to kind of put our minds in those people's. And what is it like to worry about my last meal of the month? And there was a report in, uh, in New York City that came up earlier this year that stated kind of the same thing. They said the vast majority of New Yorkers cannot live really without the next month paycheck. So tell me why rich Americans, aside from empathy and being human and feeling for those who have less, 
but make the case why rich Americans and all Americans should care about this because of the impact it can have on society and will have long term. We are one country. We live in one country. And we're not renters here, although we act like renters. Mm. We care very little about anything except me and my very immediate circle. And that's a very dangerous thing. We're losing a sense of community and we're certainly losing a sense of citizenship and the role and accountability and responsibility of being a citizen in a, in a country. Because at the end of the day, what's going on is not sustainable. So when I say I'm scared, I'm also scared that we're gonna have blood in the streets. And I mean that literally. You know, Will and Ariel Durant, writers, historians, about uh, in the 1960s were prescient. They said, look, inequality is not new to the world. It's been around throughout the millennia. And to them, they say the problem always gets resolved in one of two ways. Either you redistribute wealth, which, by the way, never works because it's not sustainable, and or you redistribute poverty. And I've been there. You know, I grew up in Romania under the communists. I know what it's like to live in a totalitarian system. It's not pretty. So I'm looking for a third way, which is to say we need to fix it. You're looking for a third way, by the way, as a member of the top 20 percent, if not the top one percent, who was is is a business guy. I mean, former chairman and CEO of Young and Rubicam, you now authored many books. You sat on boards of public companies. That's the lens through which you look at this. Exactly. But also the lens of your personal story, which is so fascinating that I want to dive into that because you have lived the American dream. You define the American dream. You came to the United States from Romania in the 1950s, rose to the top of the corporate ladder. Tell us your family story, how you got here. It is harrowing. Well, it was my karma to, to have been born just as the Second World War started. I was separated from my parents then. They arrested my father, who was an oil manager of uh, oil fields in Romania, which were the richest oil fields. It was the Saudi Arabia of, mm. of uh, Europe at the time. And the Germans wanted it very badly, so they put people associated with America, of course, in prison. So he survived that. It's a long story there, but he survived that, and we reunited uh, towards the end of '45 with my parents. I grew up in Transylvania with a very, very famous uh, politician, my grandfather, mm. and uh, we were reunited with my parents. And then in '47, he came to New York with my mother for what was to be a two-week trip to New York City. It was at that moment that the Iron Curtain comes down. Yeah, and you and your brother, my brother are, are and I, home are in Romania in school right, with our grandparents again babysitting for us. So now my, uh, my father is told, you can't go back to Romania because they will kill you, mm-hmm. which in fact happened to 300,000 influentials in Romania, politicians, religious leaders, anybody who really was perceived to be a potential threat to the communist regime was rounded up and killed. And eventually they arrested my grandfather and they killed him in prison. And shortly after that, I was about close to 11 years old, between 10 and 11. Uh, my brother and I, who was, my brother was five years older, we were arrested and sent to hard labor. You well, were, you were elected? Not quite, not quite ah. a teenager. But, you know, I could work, and I did. You know, 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week. And, uh, for how long? For almost five years. 
and of course no schooling, uh, except for monthly or so interrogation sessions where they were trying to tell us that we would have been in wonderful shape as young people mm -hmm. if it weren't for my awful, evil parents. The irony of that never seemed to <laughs> appeal to them. And your, your father, your parents were approached to spy yes. for the Communist Party, yes. and they tried to use you and your brother as leverage. Exactly. And so my, my father uh, had become, my mother and father became American citizens. And my father decided to go to the FBI the following morning after the, uh, the diplomats put this awful proposition to my father. Spy for us, or you may never see your kids again. And so, um, at that point in time, the idea was they wanted my father to become a double agent. My father said, I don't like that. I've seen that play before, it never ends well. Sooner or later, I can't do something. So, as an alternative, they said, Go public with this story, and the Russians will tell the Romanians, You can't kill the kids because the world is now on notice. So, tell the story to the world. The bigger the story, the greater the protection. And they did. And they did. And it was. Every little town, by the way, the FBI said, oh, if the story doesn't go, fan the story. <laughs> it wasn't necessary. Every little town in America in 1953 had the story of the Geodesco boys. And then amazing thing happens. A, an amazing woman, she was a congresswoman from Ohio, and she calls up my father said, I'll get your boys out. Her name was Frances Payne Bolton, a remarkable woman. In 1953, she was chairman of a congressional committee, the Foreign Relations Committee. So you can imagine what yes, kind of woman she amazing. was. She also helped elect Eisenhower president. So she had some chits, and eventually she ended up with Eisenhower. And I suspected the meeting was, I get the boys out. <laughs> and we got traded for a bunch of Russian spies. You know, you say and you write the real hero of my life was America. Exactly. And exactly. because of that, and the success that you gained and the wealth after because of the American system, um, it feels as though to me, you have a, a very personal drive to help save it, to help retain what it was that saved you. Well, it's exactly right, uh, Poppy, because you know I live the American dream, so let me define it, what it means to me. I know that I became the best Peter Georgescu that I could be. Not relative to anybody else, but I'm just not that smart, but smart enough to know my limits and also my potential, my strengths. And that's what I have given a chance in America. Not only I'm alive because of America and the American people, but because all the way my journey's life's journey, I have always gotten help guidance. The principal of Exeter reached out to me and said, come and join our school. One of the best uh, yeah, schools Yeah, and I got country. a great education. And so I lived the American dream. And I was talking not long ago with my friend Ludwig de Venk, who ran Warner Lambert at one point in time, and he said, here we are, two off-the-boat immigrants who in different businesses got to raise to the top of our professions. No other country in the world would enable one to do that, except America. And that's what I want for my three granddaughters, and not just my granddaughters, but everybody's children and grandchildren. I want an America where those values, that compassion, that caring for somebody else, 
really matters. More from my interview with Peter Georgescu after the break. So as an immigrant, um, how would you assess the state of America as a welcoming country and the administration right now for immigrants? Well, the notion is, is, is an unfortunate situation because this is a country of immigrants. You know, the power of the energy that immigrants bring to America is extraordinary. And we should welcome with open arms the best minds in the world. They have always looked to America as the land of opportunity, as the land to come and learn and practice and live in the values that we have possessed for a long time. And now we are at a, let's face it, we're in a tough time very tough time. We don't recognize this. We choose to say America first. But there's the argument from some that really support that America first doctrine, who, who I've talked to across this country, across the Rust Belt and states like Kentucky, uh, that say these, these immigrants are taking our jobs. They are taking my livelihood away. They are preventing me from being able to provide enough for my family. What do you make of that argument? Because you also write, Peter, that free market capitalism as we know it has been hijacked. Yes. Well, but first of all, I think I, I empathize so deeply. Because I worked in the marketing business, right. I made it my point to understand my most important consumers, which were the people, the everyday America. Sure, sure. Right? Those are the people that really matter for my success in business. So I know them. I go into the supermarkets. I know what the... The, 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 the public schools in this country are all about miserable in the other zip codes. And I know the people struggling, the mom with two jobs that's trying to put food on the table. Or three, I, or three, or three jobs. jobs. Exactly. And I worry about the dinner conversation that where a mom or a dad or a family, but it's mostly a, a, a mom, where's, and, and the story is, how was your day in school? How'd you deal with a bully? How'd you deal with the classroom and your friends and your peers? And what about ethics and morality and hard work? That dinner conversation never takes place. There's no time for that. So what, what, what about, because you, you, you argue that capitalism as we know it has been hijacked, right? Free market capitalism. But then you don't say, by the way, that it's government's job to fix it. You point no. to businesses as the only entities that produce wealth, by the way. The government doesn't, yeah. doesn't produce wealth. I mean, it employs a number of people, which is critical, sure. but sure. in jobs and jobs that are done for, for businesses or for, for, for the public. Um, but may I say this? Yeah. The government sector is about $4.5 trillion in terms of size. The private sector is $18 trillion. Right. And you say government should do this and government should do something else. They don't produce wealth. They can encourage it. They can support it. They can facilitate it. But the people who create wealth and prosperity is the business sector. So what's the onus? You were a CEO. You ran one of these big public companies. What is the onus on these chairmen, these CEOs, these boards? What needs to fundamentally change? Well, you used the word a few uh, minutes ago that uh, the American free market capitalism has been hijacked. And Your argument. It is my. It is an argument, and it happens to be true. You know, years ago, from 1945 to about 1980, America became the most powerful nation in the world. 
the leading economic force in the world, the leading military force in the world, because free market capitalism created, among other things, the largest middle class in the world, which is the largest market, which was America's middle class. Mm -hmm. And all of that began to change in and about that time. The, the rate increase of productivity and the rate increase in wages during this golden years was one line. As productivity went up, wages went up. And then all of a sudden productivity goes up, innovation goes up, wages have been flat for 40 years. Mm. And that was a major contributor. So it's, a it's, a, it's mainly a wage argument in your mind, a uh, what, it, what is deemed a fair living wage. It is, it is in part, but it's not only that. We also have stopped investing in our businesses themselves. And so businesses are not creating um, new markets, new opportunities, but investing. But look at Silicon Valley. Oh, please. We're talking about, you know, the, yeah. so the Dow Jones is driven primarily by about four or five companies. But, uh, but take Uber, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And look at the, I mean, I have, I have family members who have, you know, taken this on as an extra job to make some extra sure. money. So I'm all for it. I'm all for it. You know, neither, you were, you were asking earlier, you were saying, well, the, the, the poor folks in America blame the immigrants. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, some, it's, some. Some, do. sure. But and occasionally maybe that happens, but that's the wrong argument. Right. Those people are in trouble, but not because the immigrants are taking their jobs, because the jobs that uh, mostly They're that changing. immigrants do, we don't want to do those jobs. Well, and, and also the jobs are changing. I mean, and the jobs are changing. So what, exactly what do you say? I know you speak to these CEOs. I know you're trying to build or building a coalition of these CEOs that run these big public companies now to get on board with you. Is there one fundamental thing, Peter, they could do to change the game, change the situation for more Americans? What is the most material thing they could do to narrow the income gap. Well, they have to, in order to do that, you have to change the current culture and the mantra okay. of maximizing short-term shareholder value. That's the problem. So Milton Friedman is wrong. Milton Friedman, I think he would look at what, what we've done with the idea that shareholder value is about business, and you'd cringe to know what we've done with his early idea. You think he would cringe at that? Yes, I think hmm. he would cringe in that because I don't think he un would understand the unintended consequences of what he said. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the notion that the shareholder owns the assets of a company is just plain wrong. That's a fraud. That's a theological makeup thing. You know, businesses own their own assets. And the corporations have more than one stakeholder. Yes, the shareholder is important, but so is the customer, and so are the employees, and so is the corporation itself, and so is the nation and the communities. So what we have to do, what business must do, is to stop divorcing themselves mm -hmm. and saying, we must grow, and I don't care about what happens to the community and the nation. But this is the system. Quarterly earnings reports yes. for public companies is the yes. system. You're saying that has to change. The whole system Absolutely. has to change. Yes. And that, that will encourage more long-term thinking. Yes. And that will encourage wage growth. Yes. So let's talk about wage growth. Let's talk about first why wage growth is important for business. In the 21st century, capital is no longer the driving force of business. Just go to the bank puppy and ask them, how valuable is my cash? How much are you paying me for my cash, right? 
Yeah. You know the answer to that. I do. It's not yes. a lot right now. <laughs> right. Exactly. So from a business point of view, the same thing happens. What is the driving force of a business? And the answer is innovation. In the mm -hmm. 21st century, you either innovate in order to save, uh, to serve your customer better than the competition, or you die. That's the 21st century. Sure. And so who provides productivity and innovation for a corporation? Employees. Yes, that's the answer. So that's why we have to change and, not, and stop thinking about the employees as a cost only. But those employees, let's take a big tech firm in Silicon Valley and Apple, for example, those employees working on the R&D and the innovation side are, they're not making minimum wage or anywhere no. close to it. That's so how point. do you hold your argument and then apply it to the close to minimum wage worker at a fast food chain? Because the argument could be made that they're not innovating, they're serving, they're carrying out their hourly duty and doing it hopefully to the best of their ability. But are they also in that innovation ring? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single employee makes a huge contribution to the corporation, both in terms of increasing productivity. You see, when I was uh, uh, in my early days uh, as a cub um, pitching new business, we pitched KFC. So in order to understand that, I went and worked for a week in a KFC store. Number one, I, people say, well, I'm going to Nashville, I'm going to go to the Grand Ole Opry, I'm going to have fun. The heck with that. At the end of the day, I was so exhausted oh, from the physical, but that's what these people do every day of their lives. But the process that exists there can change and has changed, and the people who change it are not the CEOs, mm -hmm. They're the people who sees the fact that you have to move the vat or fat from here to there, or you have to treat the yeah. customer differently, you have to have a greeter, and so forth. Their job is harder than yours and mine. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. Absolutely. So they need to be treated, you're arguing, more as an integral part of the company and, and innovators in, in that way. Yes. You know, I remember looking at a book that almost threw it away, and it said, uh, and, the customer comes, sec comes in second. And I said, what trash is that? But I was so outraged by it that I opened the book up. <laughs> in the first sentence, I got it. They said, that your employees come in first. Yeah. Because how are you going to treat the customer? If you're treating like dirt, are you going to turn around and really care for that customer? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if the notion is this, that if you as an employee are going to share in the incremental value of what you produce. Mm -hmm. This is not about share redistribution, wealth redistribution. It's about sharing in the incremental value that productivity and innovation provides. But what gives if, if there is the fight for $15, uh, largely driven by, the, by, by fast food workers? Um, we've seen some cities taking on a $15 minimum wage. What gives? Because it's, there's not just endless amounts of of capital for these companies? Does it mean that shareholders have to take less? Does it mean that the executives have to take less? Does it mean that I pay more for my hamburger? What, what does it mean? Gen generally speaking, what it means is that the pie gets bigger. Because if you innovate, if you increase productivity, your business grows. And this is not a debatable issue. This is a fact. There have been more studies about this than anything. And you're saying paying them more will incent yes. these employees to do better, to help you exactly. build your business. This is how they get, but this is how they get the money. 
is out of the increased productivity that they deliver. In other words, they have to deliver greater value. And they do. But there's a chicken and an egg. Which comes first? They have to what deliver it to help yes. grow the pie. Yes. Yeah. And yet they have to be treated well. Because a worker is not going to stand up, spend his nights worrying about productivity increases no. in innovation if they're being treated like dirt, if, they don't, if they're not rewarded, if they're not motivated, and if somebody doesn't pat them on the back saying, good job. So you ask and you pose the question, who will be courageous enough to get the ball rolling? Yes. Uh, who will? Are there business leaders you can point to, CEOs right now, you know, who are doing it? Are you looking at Congress? Are you looking at the White House? No, I'm not looking at the White House, and I'm not looking at Congress. Okay. I'm looking at business. Are, see, are, is there anyone you can pinpoint? I don't want to give names right now because I want them to come forth. And I don't, Feel I don't free. To, Why no, not? Why no, not share it? Well, let me, let, me tell you about, let me tell you about before I get there because there's some, something that's very important. Why is it not happening? It's not happening because being a CEO today is brutally tough. Yes, they get paid a lot of money, sometimes even immorally <laughs> high uh, level salaries, but they have a very tough job because quarter after quarter after quarter, as you said, they have to deliver or else they get fired. The, the tenure of a CEO is under four years mm -hmm. and the chief marketing officer is under two, which is ridiculous. But it's brutal out there. The financial community, and now we have a whole series of, of activists. Some activists are great because they mm -hmm. help and try to help out. Some I call terrorist activists because they come in and blackmail a company to take out the cash, put people on the streets, and then to flip the company. And those are the kind of pressures that the CEO feels. Did you live that as CEO? No, I did not. I did not. I escaped that. Because in those days, we paid our people very, very well. I had to become a director of seven other public companies to begin to understand the plight that this really has and the accumulated difficulty that has happened. You were in a different business. Years. You were in an advertising marketing business. And, and just like the tech people, those people don't suffer. Right. The, yeah. average, uh, the average, even the low-end uh, employee of, of Google or Microsoft, et cetera, is doing very well. But you know who does, um, who does suffer, that works at some of these big tech companies, if you will, or any big... There, there is an increase in the number of uh, contracted workers. Yes. If you're looking at yes. many of the, the security guards at big corporations or I the understand. janitors, they don't share. And there, we see, you know, when you go to work, you see people every day. Um, at, at some companies, they don't get uh, stock options. They don't necessarily get the same paid vacation as actual employees of right. the company. They don't get the s similar wages. So that's an interesting um, and important thing to look at as well. Yes. But you see, we have to fight a culture here. There's a cultural war that's going on because shareholder primacy has become a part of the culture. So you're not responsible for other people. Mm. And so that's the, we need to change the entire culture, not just the rules, but the whole entire culture back to saying America was about caring about somebody else. And so those contractors need to be looked after. And you're right about that. And the big companies really need to take responsibility for it. And some of it. them are. And some of them are. It's interesting that Walmart, uh, everybody kind of snubbed Walmart, but they saw the light and they increased the minimum wage by $2 or so about a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. And they're beginning to understand that they need more customers to come and they need more customers to, made, uh, to be made 
welcome in the stores and helped out in the stores. And so it's beginning to happen. But the CEOs need an ally and a friend. And I'll tell you who they are. It's the equity holder. The equity holders have to play a very critical role to help the CEO who dares to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do this anymore because it's wrong for my business. Because at the end of the day, if businesses pay people better, if they invest in their own companies more, mm -hmm. they will do better for, this, uh, for the shareholder as well. Can you name one, one public company that's done that well? Yes, Costco, from the very start. The Jim CEO Senegal. always took low pay. Jim, they always okay. took low pay. Yeah, but he paid his people terrifically That's what I'm saying. Well. No, I'm, yes. think, I'm saying yes. it's fascinating. Yeah. It's sort of this reverse model. Well, but it's exactly, this is a perfect example of doing it right. From the day he started in 1983 to today, they've been compounding at 16 plus percent per year. Hello? This is shareholder return. I mean, how many... Uh, how many investors would like that to, to, to have happened to them? And in the toughest part of the business, the thinnest margins, he's managed to do it mm -hmm. and doing it right. And there are many other examples. You had my friend Ken Langone, who's one of the mm -hmm. founders of uh, Home Depot. Mm -hmm. And he cares about the people and they give bonuses to the people. Uh, who deserve it and who earn it. And the man on the floor, Ken will tell you, is the most important person at Home Depot. Who you face, who faces the who customer. Who faces the customer, who helps the customer. That's why Home Depot is doing so well. And this is why Delta Airlines, you want another example? Delta Airlines. You know, remember when an American, Air American Airlines, which I hate to say it, from personal experience, I'm not a student of airlines, but personal experience, a horrible airline the way I'm treated, or united. And then Delta stands far out in terms of service. Mm. And they have gone back to profit sharing for the last two years because they understand how important the customer is. And they're thriving. People want to fly Delta because they get better service. More from my interview with Peter Georgescu after the break. When I listen to you, I hear all of the onus on um, the shareholder and the company and nothing about the government. Have you given up on, on the government to help? Not at all. Not at all. But I wanted to focus on business because mm. business cannot allow themselves to get off the hook and say, I want the government to fix it. And there is actually something that you, there's a test you would like to see in your ideal world. And walk us through this. Here's the test. The government would provide tax incentives to businesses to pay more to employees making $80,000 or less. You would try this out for a few years, then assess the data. Did it work? What was the cost-benefit analysis? Yeah, that's one, that's one of the possible solutions. But the, the major solution is to absolutely attack and destroy this cultural shareholder primacy. Can the country afford to do something like that? It's not an. We're not talking about taking stuff away from the shareholder. Well, I'm, I'm saying making, if you have the government helping fund this, right, yeah, for a matter we'll of. We try years. to. If the returns are there, you do. Like in every, like in every business, every every program has should be judged on return on the investments that you make. And if it works, that's great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But government can do a lot. And let's, let me focus for a moment on government investment in basic research. 
And I'll give you an example, tangible example. No single pharma company could have afforded to take a risk and invest $40 billion to sequence the DNA. Nobody could, but governments could and did. Yeah. And then private, private industry monetized that. And now you have hundreds of thousands of high-paying jo uh, jobs, anywhere between 80 and $150,000 a year in the healthcare business. And that's the, an, one of the examples, and there are many, many examples like that. After all, <laughs> government has done and can do more. Who invented the internet? It was the government. And look at the great, powerful example of monetizing that technology, that piece of technology. And so we have 3D printing, we have nanotechnology, we have alternatives to fossil fuel that we can invest a great deal of money into the future of that, that create new jobs. And so, yes, government can play a huge role. But I believe in today's environment that somebody's got to start to lead the dance. Mm. And you can't look at Washington in this area of paralysis mm. and, 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 and an administration that doesn't seem willing or interested to do anything to solve, to address the basic problems of the folks that even got the president in the office. But we need to solve the problem. This cannot be allowed to become just a political issue. What about Wall Street? Um, I think it's fair to say a number of Americans, especially after the financial crisis, will point their fingers at Wall Street and say, Wall Street's not doing this, Wall Street's not doing enough. Um, I'd like to take the example of Jamie Dimon, who said this, the, the, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, the biggest bank in the United States. He says, look, the private sector has not only a moral obligation, but also a deeply vested interest in delivering on this potential for public good. Yeah. Speak about that, and are we, seeing, are we seeing a change? Meaning, is the public perception of some of these industries wrong? The truth of the matter is what Jamie said is absolutely correct. And, you know, you really have to go back to a very simple idea. Why did Mr. Ford, 100 years ago, pay his people, double their salary, etc.? Because he wanted his workers to be able to afford to buy his cars. Okay? Right now, we have 20% of America who are contributing. The only people who contribute to the GDP growth are 20% of America. Because nobody else can. How can the people who can't put food on the table contribute to GDP growth? It's ridiculous. Or the upper middle class, who at the end of the day, up to the 80th percentile, they have $8,500 left in the kitty after you take all the expenses. That's your upper middle class in America today. So what we need to do in order to get the country to grow is to rebuild the middle class that can afford to consume. So we have to put money in the pockets of the middle class. That's what Jamie is talking about. Mm -hmm. Without that, we're not going to grow. We're going to hang around 2%. Because unless we create demand, greater demand, it's not going to happen. So when the president points to the economy and points to the stock market at record highs, what do you think? Because well, only half it, of Americans have a penny in the market. Well, some of them do. Some of them have pensions, and they, that they are doing very well through that. Certainly in the, in the public sector, um, 
the pensions are very important. Yeah, but half of Americans don't have anything tied not. to the market. Of course not. Of course not. With $8,500 left at the end of the year, you're not going to go into the market. <laughs> so, you know, the, what's the market? The market is a reflection of how badly can we squeeze a corporation for profits. The stock market has nothing to do with the health of the nation. This is insanity. It's absolutely insanity. And, we build, and to be honest, we're building a bubble. Because the way the stock market goes up is not through the real organic growth, which is not there. Earnings per share are driven up by cutting the number of shares that you have, so the ratio looks great. And Wall Street says, okay, that's, that's okay with me. So now we have the highest profit margins ever mm -hmm. and basically very little or real growth, real organic growth. So much of this is financial engineering. It scares me to death. It's another bubble in the making. It was President Lyndon Johnson, a long time ago now, who launched the war on poverty. And he did it sitting on the stoop in Inez, Kentucky. And we were back recently in Kentucky, one of the smallest, uh, smallest and poorest towns in, in America. Um, has any president since that war on poverty was launched, since President Johnson, done it true justice? Not enough. And you know, I, I applaud you for this interview. Oh. And it's not about, no, I mean it seriously. And it's not about me. This has nothing to do actually with either you or me. But what's important here is for us to get a debate about what's happening in the real America to understand the plight of those people. Because we don't live it. Because we don't live it and because we don't venture. We live in a bubble. The truth of the matter, most of us live in a bubble. And we don't understand their plight. And until we do and we begin to care about those people, back to my roots and why I th this is so important to me as a human being, as a person who's got everything, including my life, from being an American, a new American, so I care about this. I care about those people. And I know that if we don't reach out to them and help them out really practically every day begin to put money in their pockets for them to get better schools, education is a, such a critical force over the long term in America. And those are the kinds of things we should be talking about today, you know? And so bring the focus of attention to the, the rest of us, 20 percenters, is very important for us to understand the plight. And we also have to reach those people to say, there are people who care about you. But don't you ever feel discouraged? I mean, you and I can talk about this, and all I can do is give it a platform, right? And, I'm, and, and we do that, and we're committed to doing that with our American Opportunity Series. But do you ever get frustrated that year, years and years go by and... We haven't seen fundamental you know, wage growth, and the plight of these people remains the same. I'm an optimist. The, gas, the, the glass is absolutely half full. For the first time in 40 years, we're beginning to talk about inequality. We have Americans who really are now saying, gee, we might have a problem here. We have CEOs who understand that we do have a problem, and they find it difficult to break out and back to the equity holder. The equity holders have to say to the CEOs, we're going to protect you. And what do I mean by that? If a, uh, if a CEO raises their hand up and say, no mas, what's going on is just not working, 
we have to change. The equity holder has to say to the market, to the public market, you want to sell, we'll buy. Why have you never run for public office if you feel so passionately oh, about this? Oh, I, well, a very simple answer. I wanted to be president, but I wasn't born here. But I didn't say president. I I'm said kidding. any public office. You. you can't dodge I'm my kidding. question. <laughs> what I mean, did you consider it when you when you retired no, from being CEO? No, I I never did. For whatever reasons, I never did. And you know, I can do I can do the things that I'm doing today, and maybe that's a very important job. I think it is a very important job to 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 hold the light and to provide a potential solution that's a practical solution. I'm not trying to appeal to the moral side of the CEO or business or the shareholder. I'm trying to appeal to their business interests. And we say, let's do the right thing for our businesses. And along the way, we'll have a bigger, stronger, most powerful America. And the better days are going to be behind us if we get to do the right thing. You're still a relatively young man. You still go running in Central Park, as you tell me. Yeah. You have three grandchildren, uh, young grandchildren. What is going to tell you, Peter, at the end of the day, when perhaps you're sitting with your grandkids at their 18th birthday and make you think, we did it, we succeeded, we made progress? I have stopped, honestly, caring so much about me. I, I, I'm, I'm not longer, no longer really running for sheriff. I don't need to do that. I know who I am. I'm at peace with who I am. And what is essential for me is to, the, to do the very best that I can when I see a problem. Mm -hmm. I want to be committed to this task. And when it's done, uh, by the way, this is a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. So this, this journey and your podcast have got to go on and on and on again <laughs> until you stop running in the park, not mm -hmm. just me. Mm -hmm. That's our karma. That's all we have to do. And each of us has to find out what can we do, where are we best suited to make a contribution, and then spend our lives with meaning that we try to do something great for our families and also great for the community and the country that has provided so much for us. And your argument is you can make great wealth for yourself and your family while creating wealth and a more fair system it's the future more. the future of america's best days an america that has in inclusive prosperity fairness and justice that's what america is about that's what will bring back the american dream for all of our children and grandchildren and that's the future and that's what I would love to continue to to be my work until it is no more Peter Georgescu thank you so much thank you so Appreciate much appreciate it Bobby. very much thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files if you're a new fan of the show please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe while you're there leave us a review and let us know how we're doing as always you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.